Good morning. I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to See Me Church. Uh, our mission is to love and live like Jesus. Last week we talked about treating people better. Today we're going to talk about diligence or staying alert. So uh, one day Adam comes home and uh, he's two hours late. Now this has never happened with Eve before. I mean, everything had been fine. He'd never done this and anything like this, even close to this. And, and so for the whole time he's gone, those whole two hours, Eve is just a nervous wreck. What is going on? What's happening? Where is he? Adam finally comes in and he, and Eve meets him at the door and right away, all the questions. Where have you been? What's going on? What happened? You never done this before. On and on and on it goes. And after she gets done, Adam finally says, okay, okay, Eve, I, I hear you. I'm so sorry. I know it was totally out of character. I've never done this before. I don't know what happened. I was at work. I got caught up. I just honestly lost track of time. I'm so sorry. Well, Adam was sincere and, and Eve had no choice but to believe him. And so they went on with the rest of their evening. But, but it just sort of, you know how it is, it stayed in the back of Eve's head. She just couldn't figure out how to let it go. So they go to bed that night and they're in bed. And of course, Adam's snoring away, sleeping like a baby. But Eve is tossing and turning and she's trying to figure out what's going on. And she starts poking Adam in the side. After about two hours, she just starts poking him. And Adam wakes up and he's like, what are you doing? Eve, what are you doing? I'm trying to get some sleep. And she goes, you know what I'm doing, Adam. Now lay down and let me count those ribs. <laughs> you know, when it comes to protecting our faith, or when it went, for Eve, when it came to protecting her marriage, she was very diligent. And the same needs to be true when it comes to our faith. We need to be diligent when we protect our faith. Listen, I've been doing this series for some two years. I probably got another year or so to go. I'm running out of jokes. I just want you to know that I'm trying. Email me jokes if you got them. Okay. So uh, let's go to God in prayer and we'll start our, our lesson today. Father, thank you so very much for this morning, for bringing us together. We pray for your spirit to be with us and speak to us through your word. Help us to be inspired, to be diligent in our faith. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. We're going to read uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see, the, do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So we know the story. We've been following it very closely for the past uh, uh, several weeks. Jesus has entered the temple on a Sunday. It was the triumphal entry. Uh, and he comes in, they're hailing him as the Messiah, and they're, they're calling out Savior and etc. And then on Monday, he comes back into the temple and he clears it of the temple of the money changers and of the, and of the uh, uh, merchants and so on. And he calls down curses on the temple and he condemns the temple and he calls for its destruction and its termination as an institution in Israel. And then on Tuesday, he comes back to the temple and immediately the leadership of the Jewish faith that are based there at the temple, these are the top guys, they immediately get him into arguments. They immediately engage him and start confronting him. You know, who do you think you are? By what authority? You, you, you know, you're a deceiver. Uh, you're a fool. You're not qualified. They do everything they can to, to confront Jesus and to shut him up. They actually want to get him arrested and killed at this point. Uh, but Jesus is so amazing. He's able to handle every argument that they throw at him with, with, with grace 
and with truth and with scripture. And, and so there's nothing they can do. And so late sometime on Tuesday, all the arguing's over. Jesus has that final a story with the old widow where he really condemns the, the way that the, the, the Jewish leadership at the time and the way that the temple was operating was so abusive towards people. And he really condemns them for their lack of treating people better the way they were supposed to. And to him, it was the final nail in the coffin. That's it. This whole system is over. I'm done. And so they leave the temple area and they're heading out through the gate back to Bethany. But as they leave the gate, they have to go up and over the Mount of Olives. You might remember from several weeks back, Bethany is actually less than two miles away, but it's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And as they leave the temple, one of the disciples looks up and he sees how amazing this building is. This is an artist's rendition. You can see the temple, and, and in the background, that's the city of Jerusalem, and it, what it might have looked like at the time. And he says, look at these buildings and these stones, and they're incredible. And Jesus says, not one of them is going to be left on top of another. Jesus was not talking here about repenting. He was not calling the Jewish leadership to repentance or to change or, or to restoration even. He was talking about a ground up rebuild. A whole new thing was coming. And this old thing, to prove his point, was just at some point going to vanish. It was going to cease to exist. I want to talk for a minute about the temple. For a thousand years, Jewish life, religiously, even nationally, centered around the temple. It was built 900 BC or so by Solomon. When it was first dedicated, it held continuous worship services for 426 years uninterrupted. You see the structure of it. We're looking here. I don't, I don't think I have a... Do I have a pointer? Okay, I just made a big mistake. Sorry. I did it again. Sorry. I thought I had a pointer. I guess I don't. So uh, if you look in that, there's a courtyard surrounding that big rectangular structure right in the middle. That's the courtyard of the Gentiles. There's columns and, and uh, walls where, where people would set up, rabbis would teach, people would, would interact and fellowship. But it was that big area where anyone was allowed to come, Gentiles, unclean Israelites, whoever. That's where they could come. They could connect with God. They could worship there. And, and that was the temple court. And then if you see, um, I can't get over there, but if you see on the right at the base of the stairs that are leading into the main uh, rectangular structure in the middle, there's kind of a dark line. It's a fence. That was called the Sorag. And on that fence, there were openings. And next to the openings were inscriptions that said uh, only it, it, the, the Gentiles and the unclean could only enter on pain of death. They had warning signs that if you crossed through that fence, you would die. They would kill you. Paul talks about this fence in Ephesians when he talks about the, the wall of hostility coming down between Jews and Gentiles. He was referring to the fence, the thing that divided them. Inside the Soreg, then you would go into that first courtyard right there in the front of the rectangular structure has sort of the four uh, or three rooms, it looks like, or four rooms in each corner. That's the court of the women. Those rooms are storehouses for supplies and equipment, etc. There were places where people could get offerings. Uh, it was probably there that Jesus was looking into when he saw the old widow put the two coins into the offering basket. 
That's where Israelite women could worship. And then towards the front, there's an arch. And just inside that arch was an area for the men. Righteous, uh, they were men who were ceremonially clean. They could enter. They were not, uh, they were Jews, not Gentiles. And it was there where they would wait when they would offer their sacrifices and the priests would offer their sacrifices and they would wait there prayerfully and in reflection and in worship. Just on the other side of that arch would have been a giant altar where they burned the sacrifices. This altar would have been massive. Next to the altar, there was a basin where they did ceremonial washings. And then you get into the main building, that tall structure in the middle. That was the building that housed the holy place on the front of it. And then on the back half of it, there was the holy of holies. Inside the holy place, there was the menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. Priests would go in there and do their ministry duties in there, their priestly duties. And then there was a curtain, a big heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was where the presence of God resided. And only the high priest on once a year could enter in there and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of all the people for the previous year. And if he didn't do it properly, if he didn't go in at the right time, if he made any mistake, he would drop dead in the presence of God. No one could enter that room except him once and one time a year. But more than that, this, this structure, this whole thing, when you take the courtyard, the columns around the site, the foundation that it was built on, it was a massive complex, 15 stories high. The foundation stones weighed over a million pounds each. In fact, those are the only thing that are left. They're not considered part of the temple. They were just what the temple sat on. That's when we talk, talk about the wailing wall. That's one of the foundation. That's one side where the foundation stones were. The temple itself was built out of all kinds of precious materials, marble, gold. If you went inside to the Holy of Holies and into the holy place, it would have been all the walls were covered in gold. The lampstand, the tables, everything were covered in gold. There was precious metal. There was silver in places. There were, there were jewels. There were em, uh, uh, emeralds, precious stones all around. It really spoke of the glory and the grandeur of God. Some people estimate that in high seasons, the temple could accommodate a million worshipers. Jews, if they didn't live in the city of Jerusalem, when they prayed, would pray facing Jerusalem. So they would be facing the temple. If you lived in the city of Jerusalem and you prayed, you would pray facing the temple. If you had a child, it was your obligation to show up at the temple with the child shortly after being born and to be dedicated there at the temple. Services were held twice a day in the morning and in the evening and then other services on special events like Sabbaths or festivals. It was a busy, bustling hub of the Israelite faith. You would have grown up visiting the temple numerous times in your lifetime. Three times a year, it was commanded that everyone would appear at the temple to worship. It, wasn't a, it was a command that wasn't enforced, but it was a command that was put out there in Scripture. And so you would make it your, you know, it would be a goal to try to go at least once a year, if not all three, or at least every so often. Jesus apparently went every year of his life with his parents. They made the journey from Nazareth all the way down to Jerusalem, some 60, 70 miles to worship at the temple at least once a year. 
it played a major role in everything Jewish, their religious, their national life. And Jesus said, it's all going away. It's all going to come apart. It's all going to be straight. Not one stone will be left on another. I think we can forgive whoever that disciple was that as he was walking out just couldn't put together what Jesus had been saying Monday and Tuesday with what he was looking at. How could this be gone? My dad was a printer and he had a shop in Hollywood. And when he retired, he left the shop and the shop was there. And every so often, me and my brothers and sisters, we'd be in Hollywood. And I always would just make a, 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 you know, a trip over there just to see the old building, to look at it. It was just kind of cool. You know, that was where my dad's shop was. We grew up going there. It was a big part of our life. My brothers and sisters would do the same thing. Last time I went by, it's gone. It was just an empty lot. I, 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 I was shocked. I, I couldn't comprehend it. It's gone. I had to take a picture and send it to my brothers and sisters. It's gone. It's just, an, it's just, it's gone. Jesus said, all of this is going to be taken away. So they leave the temple. Verse 3, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. So it's probably late in the day on Tuesday. They've left. They've probably gone out that door right there in the front of this building. This is a different view of the temple. This is a, a, you know, a model. And you can see the temple complex, the city of Jerusalem behind it. They probably went out that door, down that road, and then it would have uh, uh, switched back up the Mount of Olives. And somewhere on the side of the hill of Mount Olives, they sat down. And this might have been the view they had. It would have been pretty close to something like this. <laughs> And as they were sitting there, some of the disciples started to put two and two together. And they started realizing, oh, th this is a big deal. Like you're saying that that thing's just going to be gone. Well, when is that going to happen? And uh, how will we know that it's going to happen? And what are the signs? We're going to take the rest of the day today and we're going to read the entire chapter of Mark 13. It's a lot of reading. I'm going to do my best to get through it in a timely fashion and we're going to take it in sections and talk about each section. But it's important that we take this whole chapter as a whole because it is one interaction. It is one moment that Jesus had with his disciples and it's one continuous answer to their two questions. When will this happen and how will we know? Now, the reason why I'm pausing and I'm wanting to, to recognize what we're going to do is because most scholars, when they read the rest of Mark chapter 13, they see in that passage, not only Jesus foretelling the future of the disciples' lives and what was going to happen in their immediate future, but they believe he was also foretelling the future of the world, what we call end times. That, they were, that Jesus is giving sort of a dual prophecy here. One about what's about to happen, but then mixed into it is what's going to happen at the end of the world. 
Now, I don't know if they're right, but I want you to be aware of something. There's a danger in interpreting this passage like that, with that in mind. And I'm not here to offend anybody. If anybody's into this kind of stuff and they've read this stuff and they've, they know what I'm talking about, I don't want you to sit there and go, oh my goodness, you know, you're going you're gonna to tell me everybody's wrong. I, I'm not, that's not what it's about, but I, I want you to consider something for a minute. I want you to realize that this um, long uh, discourse, they call it, of Jesus is in a context. And the context was... The, the question that the disciples asked him after he condemned and called for the complete destruction and end to the temple system, to Judaism as they knew it. Then they said, well, when's this going to happen? And how, how do we know it's going to happen? And he answers that question. And so we need to realize that the context is Jesus talking to his disciples in the first century, somewhere around 30, 33 A.D., and he's talking to them about the future of that building right there. And what was going to happen to it in the near future, within their lifetime. The other danger, besides missing that there's a context, is that when we take it out of context, we can find meaning in anything Jesus says. We can interpret anything he says here, because he does use a lot of metaphorical and colorful language, we can begin to interpret it and apply it to our day and say, oh, this is happening now, and look at that. And then we begin to think that he's talking about our time. But you have to remember something. He's answering a question they had about their future. He's not answering questions that you might have about your future. Unless you were there. And the only guy old enough to might have been there is John Teal, and I don't think anyone else was that old. <laughs> Been a while, John, since I, I got that out there. <laughs> so to understand what we're about to read, you've got to remember, and it's going to be hard because you're going to want to interpret it as the end of the world, but you've got to remember he's talking about something that was going to happen then. Okay? And by the way, whenever you read the Bible, this is just a side point, you always need to know context. Because when you miss context, you can interpret the Bible any way you want, and it can become disastrous. So let's read. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, various places, and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved. I know you want so badly to interpret this as the end of the world. And it feels that way when you read it. 
But you have to understand something. Jesus, in context, is talking about the near future. He's talking about the future of the disciples that he's answering their question of what's going to happen to them in the near future of their life. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, deceivers, earthquakes, famines, and persecution. In other words, he's warning them that there's going to be difficult times ahead. These are not signs of the end of the temple, but rather they're things that they're just going to have to deal with regardless. They're just things that happen. Then he encourages them not to worry about defending themselves because the Holy Spirit will give them the words that they need when they need them. And then he calls them to be faithful witnesses in spite of the difficulties to come. In other words, he's telling the disciples to not get too caught up in what's going on in the world around them. Rather, they should pay close attention to what's going on to the world within them. How are they doing? What are they going to, how are they going to behave and act? What are they going to be like in any given situation? By the way, that's an important lesson we can take. Even though it's not applied to us specifically, even though he's not foretelling our future, we do know something. We do know that the world is a messed up place and we're trying to live in a messed up place. We're trying to live like Christ and the world is going to mess with us and we can get all caught up in what the world's doing and we could want to get out there and complain and scream and yell and cry and, and, and uh, uh, ask for, for uh, you, know, you know, laws to change, whatever. I mean, we can do whatever we want. But at the end of the day, the real question is, is how am I going to behave when the world behaves differently? I need to pay attention to me. The world's uncertain. I don't have to be. And besides that, we have the Holy Spirit. They were going to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to help them, give them the words when they needed them. We too have the Holy Spirit. And he does give us the words when we need them. I was talking to somebody just recently about the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? And you think of the Holy Spirit, one analogy I heard that I like is the Holy Spirit is like a basketball player who's shooting hoops. Now you got Satan and Satan's shooting hoops. And when you're not a Christian, Satan is literally doing layups. He's just giving you ideas and thoughts all day long and never misses layups. But when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's on the other side and he's shooting hoops. And the more you listen to the Holy Spirit and the more you pursue the Holy Spirit, the closer the Holy Spirit gets to doing layups and the further away Satan gets and is now trying to sink three-pointers. And so that's what the Holy Spirit is about. The Holy Spirit is about guiding us, helping us, but the Holy Spirit doesn't make us. We still have our choice. And so when, when, when the world's uncertain, how are we doing in our relationship with God? How are we, are we feeding the spirit or are we feeding the flesh? What are we doing? How are we going to behave? And, and really that's what Jesus is prepping them for. It's going to get hard here. How are you going to handle it? How are you going to behave? Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one go in the field, go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those, who, because those will be days of distress and equaled from the beginning. When God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut those days uh, short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. 
At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and prophets will appear and perform signs, wonders, and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Remember, he's talking to them. And he's preparing them. And by the way, all of these things he's talked about, the earthquakes, the deceivers, the, the messiahs, the, the, the terrible things, we can look back at history to the lifetime of the disciples and see all of those events taking place. They're, they're recorded in history. And we're going to talk about one of them, the, the most momentous one in a minute. But I just want you to understand that, again, Jesus is answering their question about their immediate future. What's interesting is he makes this statement the abomination that causes desolation. Sounds mysterious, doesn't it? It's, it's one of those like, ooh, that's got to be something about the future. We all try to figure out who it is. I remember watching TV shows when I was a kid, and they were always trying to predict who that was. You know, it would be some leader, was it, you know, whatever. But the funny thing is every generation was always doing that, and so they thought it was Hitler, they thought it was Stalin, they thought it was, you know, someone else, and it wasn't them. Because they were trying to apply this passage incorrectly. They were trying to make it read as our future when it was their future that he was talking about. Now this phrase, abomination that causes desolation, first appears in the prophet Daniel. Daniel lived around 600, 500 BC, and he prophesied about someone who would desecrate the temple in the future. Now, in the year 167 BC, about 100 years before, uh, 150 years before Jesus, a man by Anton Antiochus Epiphanes hated the Jewish people. He tried to exterminate them. And so he invaded Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He took an idol and set it up in the temple and worshipped it there. Nothing could be more desecrating to a Jew and unholy than someone taking an idol was probably of Zeus and putting it into the holy place or holy of holies and worshiping it. And we see historically, if you go back and read Daniel's account and you follow the timeline of his prophecy, that that is the, the most likely person that he was talking about. That it, it's pretty clear that he was predicting the coming of this guy named Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived about 150 years or so before Jesus. Now, Jesus uses that prophecy and, and knew, knowing that the Jews would know who he's talking about, Antiochus Epiphanes, he uses that prophecy to say that something similar is going to happen in their future. That someone is going to desecrate the temple in a very similar way. We don't have to look too far because in 70 AD, after about a four-year uh, four siege of Jerusalem, the Roman general Titus invaded the city put everyone to the sword. It was a horrible time. Went into the holy place. His soldiers looted all the gold and the, 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 the items that were there out of it. And they set up altars, probably to Zeus and Jupiter, in the holy place and worshipped. And this took place about 40 years in the future from when Jesus said it would happen. He, when he was telling the disciples, this is what's going to happen about 40 years later, that very thing happened. The temple was desecrated exactly like had happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, which Daniel prophesied about, which Jesus is quoting. It happened. It happened in their lifetime. 
So as much as we want to talk about an antichrist or someone that's going to come in the future and be this horrible person that we're all going to have to suffer under if we're alive then, maybe that's somewhere else in the Bible, but it is not in this passage. Jesus is talking about their immediate future and what they could expect. And he was preparing them for that. And by the way, the siege of Jerusalem was horrible. They did get to the point of turning on each other. The defenders inside the city actually turned on each other. Some of them claimed to be messiahs and tried to kill others. They had factions. They almost ate each other alive before Titus went in and destroyed the city. Another interesting fact that history tells us is, is at some point someone lit the temple on fire during the, during the, 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 the occupation and it burned so brightly that it melted the gold that was on the walls. And the gold spilled down into the foundation, into the cracks, and then hardened in there. And the soldiers broke up all the stones to get the gold out, which explains why the temple got destroyed so quickly. You could imagine a couple legions of Romans, now miners, trying to get gold. They tore that thing completely apart. That's historical fact. And it lines up exactly with the prophecy of Jesus which he made in about 38, 30, 33 AD, came true in about 70 AD. Now, to the Jews living at the time, this would have felt like the end of the world. And it was, as they knew it. For a thousand years, the temple was everything to their faith. It was the center, it was the hub and here it is completely destroyed in just a short time. Wiped off the face of the earth. I, I really apologize. I meant to get a picture and I forgot. But I was going to show a picture of what the temple looks like today. And it's literally just a flat piece of land. It's just a flat piece of land. Where it was originally. It's gone. Exactly like Jesus said it would. You know, you think about, well, what about the language? I mean, how do you explain this language? It seems so dramatic. And I go, well, when you're going through something like that, language is dramatic. We do it today. Think about what just happened recently. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but North Korea and South Korea came together and had talks. And supposedly they're going to keep going. And hopefully they do. And hopefully peace comes out of this. That'd be awesome. But we would describe that as earth shattering. We would say the world is spinning backwards. The planets have aligned. We would talk in that kind of language. It's the same kind of language Jesus is using to describe the fall of the temple. And you say, why? We don't relate to it because we didn't spend our entire lives and generations before us at the temple. Just like you might not understand how deeply it, it hurt me to see my dad's building gone. It's like, man, I, I grew up there. This is gone. Well, the Jews had a whole history of a thousand years and it was gone. The end of their world as they knew it. And so Jesus was preparing them. And he says, you got to be on guard. You know, just like the defenders of Jerusalem, when they, when they tried to fight off the Romans, they did as much damage to each other as the Romans did to them. We can do the same thing. As Christians, we live in a hostile environment. And yet we can, we can be so hurtful to each other. 
We, even, even small ways, we can, we can offend each other in our language, refuse to apologize, refuse to take responsibility, all that kind of stuff. Really? That's what's going to divide us? That's what's going to tear us apart? Little disagreements we have, well, I don't like the way she dressed, and I don't like the way he talked to me. What? We live in a hostile world. The one thing we have that shields us, the one thing that we can hold on to that keeps us strong when in times of trouble is each other. Our love for God and our love for each other. Let me, let me ask you right now, if there's any unresolved issue going on in your life with anyone in this congregation, get it resolved today. Get some perspective. We are dealing with bigger issues than how so-and-so looked at me or how I felt when so-and-so said this or I wasn't invited to that. Do not give Satan a foothold. Do not give him an avenue to break up our bond. we got to be there for each other. I'm not saying that this is all going to happen in our lifetime. I am saying like Jesus did at the beginning of his prophecy, that there are just normal things that are going to happen that are hard enough. Earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars, etc. Those things happen no matter what. We really got to be good with each other. Because the world is uncertain. It's nice one day and it's not nice the next. And so we got to protect one another and look out for each other. Now we get to the fun part. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the people will see the Son of Man in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels, gathering his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now he's talking about the end of the world. He's got to be. I mean, look, he's talking about coming back. He's in the clouds and he's coming with angels. It's funny but even the most firm scholars who, who, who look at this passage and go, no, it's, it's, it's time and place. It's referring to then and then, there and then. They get to this part and they go, well, maybe he's talking about the end of the world because it feels like such a jump. But all I want to say to you is there's no evidence for that. Go back and read the whole story. It would make no sense. All of a sudden he talks about the end of the world. This is all one answer. So how do we rectify this? How do we, how do we process this? How would they have understood what he meant when he started talking about the sky darkening and the moon, things falling and all that kind of stuff? Well, like I said before, this is what they call colorful language, or we could use the word apocryphal language. The idea is, is he was talking to them and he knew that this would be hard for them and it was a big deal for them. And so he's using words that would make sense to them. Yeah, it's a big deal. I get it. When the temple gets destroyed... It is the single biggest event in God-man relations since the giving of the law at Mount Sinai when God met Moses on Mount Sinai thousands of years before and gave him the Ten Commandments. That was the beginning of God-man relationships under the Mosaic Covenant. And that covenant lasted for a thousand years or more until we get to Jesus' day when he said it's over and now something totally new is going to happen. A whole new covenant is coming and it's happening in your lifetime. 
and it's going to feel like the sky is falling. It's going to rock your world. I, honestly, I don't have anything I can compare to in my life with this. I mean, I try to relate it to my conversion. Well, my conversion, man, that was a big deal. Rock my world. Yeah, but nothing like that. Maybe some of us have had that kind of a conversion experience, and amen. I mean, the biggest thing that ever rocked my world was, was when my dad passed away. And that rocked my world. And that's, that's the connection I can make. You guys, you, those of you that lost people like that, loved ones, you, you get that. The, the sun goes dark. The sky falls. It's the worst thing that ever happens in your life. And, and Jesus is prepping them. Guys, this is going to be horrible. I get it. Now, Jesus is going to come back. We know that. And he seems to be saying that he's coming back at some point in the lifetime of the disciples. When he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds, Jesus liked to call himself the Son of Man. And the interesting thing I want to put before you, and here's an interesting question, is what did he mean by coming back? We think of him coming back physically, like he's going to come back and we're going to see him and he's going to land on the earth somewhere and judge everybody and then it's over, right? Just like he came the first time, he was born and physically lived on the earth and then died and we expect him to come back. But, but this description of coming back doesn't always have to be physical. There can also be a spiritual style or a way in which you can interpret that. And so in that sense, Jesus could come back more than once. I'm not talking about coming back to save you and on, on Judgment Day, but I'm saying there are, there are times where Jesus does come back to our lives. Like, like moments happen. We call them come to Jesus moments. And it's like Jesus just showed up, right? He wasn't physically there, but all of a sudden it just sort of made sense. And that happens a lot of times. People go through, they become sober. And it's like a come to Jesus moment. It's like, wow, Jesus just showed up. You know, wow, I got to change my life. Maybe that's what my, my conversion was like. My baptism was like a, Jesus just sort of showed up. Was he there physically? No. Was it his second coming? No. But it was him coming. He was there. Maybe, maybe that's how he meant it. Let's talk about the phrase son of man for a minute and see if we can learn something. I love this, this passage. This is also from Daniel. The phrase son of man comes from Daniel. So it makes sense. Jesus has been quoting Daniel this whole time. He's been following, he's been paralleling stories in Daniel with what's going to happen in their future. This is a quote from Daniel, a vision that Daniel had. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. In other words, a human coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, Jesus loved to call himself the son of man. It was his favorite term for himself. Don't think that they didn't make the connection. That he was somehow connecting himself to these prophecies like Daniel had. And in this, this, this vision that Daniel had, he sees someone that looks like a man who goes into heaven and, and, and is actually God. He gets all the authority, power, and glory of God, and then he reigns forever in a kingdom that will never be destroyed. If you go back and read the whole context, I'm cutting it short for time, you'll find out that this if you follow the timeline of Daniel's understanding of his vision, you'll see that he's actually talking about the first century. He's talking about the time, the lifetime of the disciples. He's looking that far into the future. So what, how do we make sense of this? How do we put all this together? 
Well, Jesus did come in the first century. He was born. He lived a life. He died. He resurrected three days later, proving that he was God. During that time that he was dead, he did go into heaven. He was seated at the right hand of God, given all glory, power, and authority, acknowledged as the king and the ruler. And we are now waiting for him to return physically. But Jesus adds something really interesting. He says, in his account of, of Daniel, he says, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. Now, the word angel, we always think of a spirit being, right? But the word angel is, doesn't mean that. It, it, it means messenger. And depending on context, it could be a human messenger. You could be an angel. We say that. Oh, thank you for telling me Candy's here. I, I, you haven't had the baby. So I'm waiting for the human messenger to show up and say, the baby's born. I'm going to go, you're an angel. Right? We, we get good news and we call, we, that messenger's an angel to us. So depending on the context, the messenger could be a human or a spirit. I'm not sure exactly how all this sorts out, but I, but I want you to think about what Jesus might be saying here. If we put it in context, I think what he's saying is that when you see all this happen, when this temple com comes all apart, it is a judgment of God. It is like the end of the world. And I'm going to send my messengers out to find the elect. And I believe he's talking to the disciples. I believe he's telling the disciples, you're my angels. You're my messengers. Right now, between the time of Jesus' leaving Jerusalem and, and you know, this last week of his life and, and the whole generation that went on before the temple got destroyed, Christianity spread. And it spread by word of mouth. But when the temple came down, it exploded. Because the temple was no longer in the way of people's faith or coming to faith in Jesus because they realized, oh, maybe something happened. And so Christianity began to explode in the Roman Empire. Is he perhaps prophesying the spread of the faith as a result of the implosion of Judaism? I think that actually fits in the context. I think that actually works with the connection to the vision of Daniel. And so, yes, did he come back at 70 AD? Not physically, but what happened is his message went out. And his angels, his messengers, the disciples went out. And they found the elect. They found believers all over the world. Now, here's where it gets really cool. We're messengers too. So we're sort of living in this moment that Jesus is describing, where he is in heaven, ruling his kingdom, that's an eternal kingdom, and we, you and me, are the messengers. We're the angels of good news. And we get to go out and find others who will believe the message. We are those gathering the elect from the four winds. That's you and I. That's what we're about. I look at that and I go, it's so interesting, it's so inspiring, it's exciting to think about that we serve a king who has a kingdom that will never be destroyed, he's eternal, he's seated at the right hand of God, and we are on a mission, a mission of love, to go out and find lost souls. How have you been doing? 
Have people been calling you an angel lately? Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for bringing what you brought to me. Or have you not been really doing it? Have you been sort of caught up in the world and the concerns about the world and what's going on around me and what's going on on social media and thumbing through your phone 24 hours a day and missing that you are supposed to be an angel, a messenger of God, and your job, your primary function, is to find the elect. I enjoy talking to Mike Roblin. You guys all know Mike, dear friend. Every time I talk to him, he's grateful for Gerardo. Gerardo's his angel. Gerardo's the one that came and found him. You think about the person that found you, and they're an angel. They glow. Because they found you. Jesus wants you to be that angel to others. We're going to wrap it up here. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer's near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. He's talking about them. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. Do not, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts a servant in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. So Jesus is concluding this, and he basically says, look, you guys look at fig trees, and fig trees are one of the few plants in the Middle East that actually go through a cycle. A lot of the plants in the Middle East are, are, are evergreen. In other words, they're just always there, and they, they stay the same. But the fig tree has the cycle where it dies, and then it comes back. And when it dies and comes back, everyone knows summer's coming. And he says, look, these things are going to happen just as sure as a fig tree is going to turn green in the summer. Trust me, all of the things I just told you are going to happen in your lifetime. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen exactly like, like I said. But your job is to be on guard, to be alert, to be diligent. So one of my favorite bumper stickers of all time. I wish I had a picture of it, but I'll just read it to you. It's real simple. It says, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> and he's kind of saying that right here. I'm coming back. Be diligent. Be about the job. Do your work. So Mark 13 is about specific events in the past. But the message relates to us today. We can learn things from it. The world's going to do what it does. We got to do what we're going to do. We got to be diligent like Eve and protect our faith and be about God's will. This time we'll stand. I'll close this out in a word of prayer and you'll be dismissed.